evening. Welcome to Pratt Library. I'm Vivian Fisher and I manage the African American Department. And it is my pleasure this evening to introduce our guest speaker, Dr. Antonia Randolph, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at the University of Delaware. As a cultural sociologist, her research focuses on race and ethnicity, gender and sexuality, popular culture, specifically hip hop, and education. Her recent research has examined race, gender, and masculine embodiment in rap music and how race affects teachers' perceptions of students and schools. This evening, she will discuss her latest work, The Wrong Kind of Different, Challenging the Meaning of Diversity in American Classrooms. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Randolph to the Pratt Library. Thank you so much, Vivian. And um, first of all, I want to thank the Pratt Library for having me. I was telling Teresa that I've come to a lot of these talks, and it's really great to be um, standing up here instead of in the audience. So I encourage people to come back to these talks. They're wonderful. They're free. Um, and I also want to um, thank you guys for coming out and sharing your Thursday evening with me. Um, and as Vivian said, I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Delaware. But I live here in Baltimore, I think I should say that, um, so I'm not just parachuting in from nowhere. I'm here in Baltimore. Um, and today I'm going to share with you um, some of the things that I found uh, when I was doing my dissertation work as a um, grad student. Um, so I was a grad student at um, university, um, and I was part of the study of um, elementary schools and we were looking at how schools um, talk, about lead, talk about instructional innovation. How do schools um, get teachers and other faculty members on board to um, getting teachers to teach differently? So the studies that we're doing was about how to get teachers to teach in different ways. That was the studies that we're talking about. And we're in 11 different schools in this large um, multiracial Midwestern city that I call Lake Town in the book. And this is what we were studying, um, leadership in schools. Um, and there were 11 different researchers. We're all in different schools. I was in one school. Um, but we, had, we shared notes, so we have the interviews with all the teachers in all the schools. And we were talking about a lot of different things, but mostly about um, teaching. And we talked to teachers before they went into class and then after they went into class. We talked to them in faculty meetings. We talked to them. Um, informally about how they got to be teachers. And one thing that I noticed that kept coming up was stuff about race and ethnicity. So the, school, the study wasn't designed to, to look into race and ethnicity, but I noticed in looking at the interviews with teachers that they talked a lot about race and ethnicity. Um, and in particular, they talked a lot about diversity. And I thought, well, that's interesting because we didn't ask them about diversity. But in the course of talking about what they liked about their schools or the neighborhoods that the schools were located in, they wound up talking a lot about, you know, racial composition, um, ethnic composition, and diversity in particular. And the thing I became interested in, one of the things I became interested in is, first of all, diversity as a phrase kept coming up, and it came up as a positive thing. And I began to wonder, well, what do they mean by diversity? What's diversity for these teachers? And 
why does it keep coming up in our conversations? Um, so the book is interested in thinking about what does it mean to be a student of color in this time period? And I start off thinking that this is an um, interesting time that we're living in for thinking about race and ethnicity. Because for one thing, we're past the period of time where overt racism was seen as being okay. We're past the period of time of Jim Crow, where to say that different racial groups are inferior um, um, was seen as a mainstream point of view. We're past that point of time. So it's an interesting time to be a student of color in um, public schools because overt racism is frowned upon. In fact, um, people have talked about it as being a colorblind period where people think to talk about race is to be racist, but also it's, um, it's inappropriate, it's wrong to say that racial groups are um, inferior or superior. So that's an interesting time to be a student of color when um, we're not making these kind of distinctions between racial groups, placing them in the same sort of hierarchies, or at least it seemed as, seen as being something wrong, um, where we're in this colorblind period where um, we want to um, think that racism has pretty much been dismantled because formal institutionalized racism through laws has been uh, repealed. So that's one part of the time that makes it interesting. And then also that, that idea of multiculturalism kept coming up. So um, how does multiculturalism affect how teachers think about students, um, especially considering the history of American public schools as being an assimilating force? What do I mean by being an assimilating force? Well, historically, American public schools have been the place where you lose your accent. Historically, American public schools has been the place where you learned how to become an American. But I would say that we're in a different time period where uh, multiculturalism is sort of a force that pushes against that, where we're recognizing and honoring difference, where you tell people we should celebrate diversity. We should not get rid of our differences, but notice it and talk about it and learn about it. So there's this tension, I would say, between um, the assimilating history of the American public schools and this current time where multiculturalism is more mainstream. So I became interested in this connection between colorblindness and multiculturalism. What happens when we combine colorblindness where talking about races as though they're biologically inferior is out of favor, um, but also where talking about race at all is seen as being racist. So what happens when we're in this colorblind period that's also multicultural? Multicultural colorblindness. So what does being student of color mean after overt, overt racism is out of favor and multiculturalism completes with assimilation as a response to difference. What does it mean to be a student of color then? Well, what I found out after looking at um, these interviews with these teachers, at least in Lake Town, um, teachers wound up recognizing and rewarding difference. So multiculturalism is in practice. Teachers are noticing students' distinctions and they say, isn't it great that my school is so diverse? Or isn't it great that these students have this kind of heritage. So we're recognizing and noticing and rewarding difference. So that's the multiculturalism, multiculturalism part, but in a way that reproduces, that winds up reproducing um, white dominance. So there's a contradiction that I found in teaching, looking at what the teacher said, that we're recognizing difference, but in a way that winds up 
recreating assimilation. We're recognizing difference in a way that winds up still centering um, being white and being American and being middle class as the norm. That's kind of interesting. So the term I came up with to describe this is assimilating diversity. And those things are um, intention deliberately. If you're assimilating, you shouldn't be able to be talking about diversity, but in fact, teachers are able to do both things, to recognize difference. Oh, isn't it great that this is a diverse school? But in a way that ends up um, supporting the idea that students should ideally be middle class. Students should ideally have American values. Even if you're not native-born American, you should have American values. These sort of ideas. So assimilating diversity. I spend the bounds of the book developing that idea. but the premise is, the starting point is, we should recognize that we're interest, in interesting times, that it's different from where it was in the past where um, it would be okay to sort of write off students of color because of their race. That still happens, but there's a push against that. So we're in an interesting time where that's happening, but also multiculturalism with recognizing difference. So I'm going to read a section from the introduction of the book. A researcher asks a white teacher at a multiracial public elementary school to describe some of the strengths of the neighborhood where her school is located. She immediately replies, it's a really diverse community, so it's really cool to be in a school like this because there's so many cultures represented. Across town, a black teacher at a black school explains that she did not like her current school at first, saying, when I looked at it, I knew I wouldn't like it. This was especially true compared to the all-white school where she used to teach. She only decided to stay at the black school after her teacher said, after her sister told her that these, quote, students are different from the ones you worked with at your last job. You must realize that. If we were to travel back to the 1950s and examine the same, same scenes, the white teacher may have viewed her school's diversity as a problem to be solved by assimilation, not an attraction. So that's one of the things that I notice in how teachers talk about their schools, that they weren't pushing students to get rid of their heritage. In fact, they were attracted to schools because of their heritage. So that's new, I would say, new of this time period. At the same time, the black teacher may have seen teaching at an all-black school as her duty, not a burden. A shift has occurred since the 1950s that has elevated teacher perception of some minority students but not others. Hence, teachers can be drawn to a diverse school due to its diversity, while others can still rank black schools as low status. The scenes tell a complex story of how teachers respond to diversity in America today in the wake of colorblindness and multiculturalism. If teachers celebrate diversity, they cannot be accused of being biased against minority students such as blacks. That is, they cannot be racist. They can still claim colorblindness. Yet multiculturalism has not helped boost the status of blacks. Teachers' praise of certain minorities groups due to multiculturalism has allowed their negative perceptions of other minorities to stay unexamined. The two phenomena are connected. So that's the basic tension in the book that I'm trying to tease out, that um, we can talk about diversity and yet never challenge racism. In fact, you can use the ideas of diversity to support essentially racist notions, essentially ideas about hierarchies between groups of people. Um, So... The two don't cancel each other out. Recognizing diversity doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing anti-racism. So the book is about a particular logic of diversity, one that elevates the status of multiracial schools 
and certain minorities, but leaves the low status of black schools and black students intact. It is about the meaning of race and ethnicity when we are instructed to appreciate diversity but not to talk about race. It is about the new comparisons that teachers are able to make among minorities now that we are interested in what makes each group, each ethnic group unique. In short, it is about the trade-offs that come with moving from social justice to diversity as the dominant frame for thinking about minority status. And so this, the book um, is an indictment of diversity thinking, but isn't arguing that diversity is inherently a bad way to think. It's saying, what do we lose by only thinking about diversity? It's saying, what does thinking about diversity cover up in terms of power relations? So it's um, asking us to critique diversity, the move towards diversity for describing all the ways we should respond to students of color. What do we lose in that trade-off? Well, I'm saying we lose a focus on social justice. We're losing the idea that we should um, redress past wrongs. We lose that kind of stuff in the process of talking about diversity. Um, so in a sense, the teachers I found were constructing some students as the right kind of different, but then other students as the wrong kind of different. And um, the book teases out what that means. So a little bit about the schools. Um, so we were in 11 different schools in this large Midwestern city that I call Lake Town. Um, seven black schools, two Latino schools, and two multiracial schools. And by multiracial schools, I mean schools that had um, no one racial or ethnic group made up more than 40% of the population. So pretty diverse. Um, blacks and Latinos and Asians and white students. Pretty diverse schools in the multiracial schools. Um, and out of the 11 schools, there were three middle-class schools. And by middle-class, we meant schools that were 70% or less low-income. And so the two multiracial schools, we called those middle-class schools, and then one of the black schools was middle-class. So the thing I want us to notice about what we're calling middle-class schools, 70% 70, 70 or less of the students were low-income. Even still, that's a lot of low-income students. If that's the low-income uh, measure of being low income, um, middle class, that's 70% or less is low income. That means um, most of the schools in Lake Town were full of low income students. And that's typical of public schools generally, that there's, um, the people who use public school system um, are, middle are working class and poor. Um, and so the teachers, um, I looked at the interviews with 100 100 teachers, 50% of the teachers were white, 38% were black, 8% were Latino, and 4% were Asian. Um, and those demographics for the teaching that it was dominantly, predominantly white is typical of elementary school, or public schools generally, that the teaching population is predominantly white, female, um, middle class, and suburban. And so one of the reasons that I got interested in this work is, is because this growing mismatch between the teachers who are in the classrooms and the students they're serving. The student populations are becoming increasingly um, diverse. They're increasingly students of color, they're poor, and they're working class, and then teacher populations has remained mostly white, mostly middle class, mostly from the suburbs. So who are teaching urban students and what sense are they making of them? A little bit um, information about Lake Town as a place. So Lake Town isn't that different from 
Baltimore City in the sense that it's a city of neighborhoods. Um, and you know how in Baltimore we say that I'm from this side of town and people conjure up an image of who lives there. Lake Town's that kind of city. So it's a um, city of neighborhoods and it's a city of neighborhoods marked by racial and class segregation. So if I said I was from this part of town, even without naming a racial or ethnic group, people knew what I meant. Um, so it's a diverse city, but highly racially segregated. And then also, the other thing I want us to think about in terms of the setting is that it's a really diverse town. So the students um, that went to these 11 schools um, were um, African-American. And I say African-American deliberately because the students in Lake Town were um, black, but their ethnicity was African-American. And you can imagine being in another sort of city like New York City or New Jersey where to be black, that having that racial identification doesn't necessarily mean having the ethnicity African-American. You can be Afri Afro-Caribbean, you can be um, you know, African immigrant. So in Lake Town, to be black uh, meant being African-American. So they had a large African-American population. It had a, also had a large, long-standing Latino population, predominantly um, Puerto Rican and Mexican in Lake Town. Um, had a large, long-standing East Asian population, so Chinese and Korean parts of town. Then also they had a growing South Asian population, Indian and Pakistani and those groups of people who are more recent immigrants to Lake Town. And then finally, had a population of whites who are native-born, native-born whites, and in the way that here in Baltimore we have Highland Town that's been associated with particular ethnic groups or Greek town associated with Greeks. Lake Town was that kind of city where there's um, long-standing history of whites who had still had ethnic identification, so native-born whites who are white ethnics in that sense, but also recent white immigrants from the former Soviet Union countries. And so a diverse, a really diverse diversity, and that comes up in what teachers talk about too, that it's not just diverse, it's really diverse. <laughs> so, okay, so why did I get interested in this stuff in the first place? Well, part of it is that hanging out in schools and talking to teachers, um, and the study wasn't designed to study race, and then all the stuff about race came up. So that's part of why I'm interested. But um, another, a big part of the, why I'm interested in this stuff is because of my um, own background. I've always been interested in the intersection of race and ethnicity because of my own heritage. And I have a section in the book called Autobiography of a Name. And it goes into the history of my full name. So, the name Antonia Maria Randolph can take people by surprise, the Spanish-sounding first and middle names clashing with the Anglo-Saxon last name. Antonia Maria isn't all that common among African Americans. Um, and raise questions about my race and ethnicity. My names are uncommon for a black woman in a country where being racially black still means ethnically African American to many. When I tell people that my mother is Costa Rican, my name makes more sense. In fact, they often become more interested in my background than they were before. This book is about the forces that make us more curious about certain heritage than others and the consequences of making these distinctions. If the story of my name piqued your interest, made, made me seem more interesting, you likely, you likely responded out of the same multiculturalisms that teachers do. Most of us are guilty of finding the exotic interesting. The teachers are not unique in this. 
However, the book will show our path to this curiosity is not innocent, but often motivated by a desire to avoid talking about race, injustice, and inequality. And so if I were to have, um, when I give people my name, first of all, people um, mangle it and they can't pronounce it because it's an unfamiliar name for an African-American person. If I was among Latinos, Antonia would come up more readily. Um, but then also people become curious into my background, but how do I wind up with this Spanish-sounding name? And the Costa Ricanness of my mother comes up, but not the fact that my dad's people are from South Carolina. That's not terribly interesting. And why? So that's the question the book is posing. Why that part of my heritage isn't interesting as Costa Ricanness? Um, so, moreover, a reason to express this curiosity is that it puts us in a good light. Aren't we tolerant? Aren't we knowledgeable and cosmopolitan? In that sense, the curiosity is instrumental. We, don't, we want to know more because it benefits us, not just so we can connect with another person. Finally, the curiosity about my name flattens my background. I'm actually named after Lady Antonia Fraser, a British writer who my mother admired. Thus, my, name, my first name owes as much to my mother's Anglophilia, Anglophilia burnt, born from the Jamaican origins of her family as to, as to her Costa Rican pride. So I'm actually named as, after a white British lady. Um, so, fooled you all. No. <laughs> no. Um, but right, and so the teachers were doing that sort of thing, though. What does it mean to be Latino? Well, it must mean that you have a big family. And it must mean that you're Catholic. And you're making all these assumptions about what does it mean to have that heritage because that's what um, ethnicity means for you. So, but what I'm trying to underline here is that we all are sort of, most of us are guilty of doing this sort of thing. And it's just that teachers in the classrooms making sense of students of color and what are the implications of that. So I wind up arguing in the book that teachers recognize diversity in a way that reproduces white supremacy and white normativity, um, doing something that I call assimilating diversity. And for the rest of the talk, I want to pull out three themes from the book. One, I want to point out the ways that teachers rewarded ethnicized minorities. Um, and what do I mean by ethnicized minorities? Well, we all have a race and ethnicity. We probably have multiple ethnicities. We probably have multiple races. Um, but what I talk about in the book is that teachers preferred thinking about students of color in terms of ethnicity, not in terms of race. So ethnicized minorities. Emphasizing um, topics such as cultural heritage, ancestry, um, practices about language, religion, those sort of things. So thinking about their students, this is what's important about them, their ethnic heritage, not their racial heritage, so ethnicized minorities. People also talk about immigrant minorities versus native-born minorities, so people who are minorities in the United States because they immigrated to the United States versus native-born minorities like African-Americans who are here forcibly. Um, so teachers rewarded ethnicized minorities, and that speaks to the why does it matter question teachers actually doling out resources differently based on the backgrounds of students. I also want to talk about how teachers created hierarchies between minorities through comparisons. Um, and so what's interesting here is that if we think about the history of race in the United States, race and ethnicity, um, the split, I would argue, has been between whites and then everybody else, whites and everybody else. But the teachers are actually introducing this nuance. They're whites on top. They're 
African Americans, blacks on the bottom, and then they're becoming much more interested in immigrant minorities in the middle. So making these comparisons between blacks and other minorities um, to the detriment of blacks. But then the third point that I'm going to make um, in the talk is that even while they're lauding immigrant minorities with having different kind of virtues, they wind up recreating whiteness as dominant. And so I don't want us to go away from the talk thinking that immigrant minorities are getting sort of um, an elevated status in the schools because they're not. Um, the last part of the talk thinks about how teachers said that, this, that immigrant minorities are good because they remind us of whites, essentially. Immigrant minorities have values that are mainstream. Immigrant minorities have value, family forms that are like white middle class. So the comparison um, is made in the service of elevating this norm. So the norm doesn't change, even though the groups that we're using to argue for the norm changes. Okay. So talk a little bit about having the right kind of difference, the ethnicized, ethnicized difference. So this is a comment from a black teacher at a Latino school describing her school's neighborhood. Um, she starts off by saying the neighborhood is a working class neighborhood in the inner city. Now based on previous research, we might expect a teacher to have negative perceptions of her students due to their low status and racial, racial mismatch or the racial difference between her students and herself. And there's a long literature saying that if you're a different race of your students, then you tend to have um, more negative perceptions of the students. So this is a black teacher at a Latino school. And also, teachers tend to have a negative perception of lower income students compared to uh, middle class students. So the teacher just said, this is a working class neighborhood in the inner city. But contrary to expectations, the teacher's comments that the neighborhood is a thriving community even though there's a lot of poverty. She went on to say, quote, I admire Hispanic people because they might, may not have, they might not have a dime, but their children are taken care of. Their clothes are clean. They try to provide what they can for their children. In her estimation, Latino students have decency due to their Latino heritage, which belies their poverty. This quote touches on the issues of minority status, morality, and symbolic value that animates this chapter. Across schools, teachers ascribed good morals to minorities, such as Latinos and Asians, whom, whom they constructed using the ethnic discourse of cultural inheritance derived from national origin. However, this type of admiration was absent in teachers' talk about black students, whom they often cast as needing rescue from their morally bankrupt families and communities. Not incidentally, teachers constructed black students using a racial discourse that treated blackness as insurmountably different from mainstream society. So, you know, part of what's interesting here is that this teacher starts off saying it's a poor, it's a poor, a working class neighborhood, an inner city neighborhood. And if you think about the associations we have with poverty, they're often negative. They're often about um, moral failure. But what she ends up saying is that I admire Hispanic people because they have this decency. They're decent poor people, unlike as we'll find out later in the um, talk. Unlike blacks who are also poor, but they don't have the same morality. They don't have mainstream morality. And so why, what accounts for their decency, even in the face of being poor? Well, being Latinos, they have the same kind of get up and go as white ethnics who came to the country have. He came to the country from um, someplace um, in Europe, 
and you had not a penny to your name, but you had gumption, you had pluck, and that helped make you get ahead. So even though you're poor, you had good values. And in the same kind of way, teachers imagine Latinos and Asians and white immigrants as having good values, poor but decent. And so they're making this connection between their ethnic heritage and their, um, their morality that they don't extend to other poor minority groups, i.e. African Americans. Okay. Another thing that I found in schools was how often teachers said that their schools were diverse and then talked about the diversity of their schools being one of the attractions of the school. So this is from a, a white teacher at a multiracial school. Um, a white teacher at this school described being drawn to the school by a desire to be exposed to the unusual, the unfamiliar, in short, the foreign. When asked about what she likes about the school, she said, um, well, I think the best part uh, the best part, and one of the other things besides the decor was that I liked the population. It would be something new to me. I just wanted to work with a diverse school that had lots of flavor. And I've worked in schools on the west side and on the south side. And, and, that just, and this just seemed really appealing to me, so that's why I'm here. School with lots of flavor, with students that are new. Okay. This teacher's sentiment represented the view of the majority of teachers at multiracial schools. Teachers perceived multiracial schools as desirable places to teach because they were multiracial. This sentiment was especially evidenced by the fact that so many teachers cited the diverse student body as the main reason they decided to teach at multiracial schools. But the diversity they sought had to have lots of flavor, a phrase that invokes the taste of foods that are unusual to Americans. Teachers wanted the, the diversity of cultural difference, of foreign clothes, values, and foods. Specifically, they wanted ethnic difference, that of white immigrants and immigrant minorities. The, teachers in the, quote, the teacher in the quote said as much, though she used racial code words rather than racial and ethnic labels. She said she came to her school seeking students that were new to her, suggesting that she sought students of a different racial and ethnic background than herself. Yet she narrowed the kinds of diversity that she sought, saying that she came to Dodge from schools on the west side and south side. In the racial geography of Lake Town, west side and south side are code words for black areas in the city. Reading between the lines then, this white teacher sought a new school, sought a school with many different foreign races, not a predominantly native-born minority school. Um, I also noticed teachers thinking about diversity, so it's a good thing I come to a multiracial school because I want to be around diversity, but I narrowed what that means. Um, and I also want to be around diversity because what they gain from being around diversity. Um, and that's actually a trend in how people are justifying diversity in higher education. So in terms of affirmative action cases, um, the new winning argument is not to say that we need affirmative action because we want to redress how people of color have been barred from entering higher education in the past. The new winning argument is to say we want to have diverse schools because everybody benefits from being in diverse places. And so that's a different sort of logic, different logic in terms of who benefits from diversity. And so the teachers had this kind of instrumental eye gain from diversity, and that might be the most important reason to have diversity because I learned some stuff. Um, 
So these are all teachers from this, the same multiracial school. An Asian teacher explained that, I even learned from them. I've learned more since I've been teaching, learned how to teach, and my methods have changed in some of my beliefs. I know how to work with them better. Her statement that she even learns from her students indicates that she had not expected to learn from them. In a similar vein, a white male teacher at the school said, quote, the kids give it a definite plus of the school, the types of kids you teach, and each nationality is actually different. And it raised a couple of generalizations that I had about, a cert- about certain nationalities since dealing with the kids here. Finally, a black teacher at do- uh, the school said, showed a knowledge of differences among Asian ethnicities, saying, quote, Vietnamese, you never pat them on the head because it's like a religious thing. Nothing's supposed to touch their head but God. And, quote, it's quirky what not to do to the Japanese, what not to say to the Japanese. These people might seem like they're being really standoffish and snotty, but you just seem like a freak because you're telling all of your business to somebody you hardly know because you're an American. In all these examples, teachers positively perceived the ethnic composition of their school because of what they can learn from their students. So they're gathering experiences. They're gathering experiences of diversity, and that's why diverse schools are, are good. And then finally, um, another benefit that teachers saw in being around diversity of having this particular kind of diversity is that it reaffirms the American dream. So what's good about having ethnic minorities um, be successful is that it allows us to say that racial barriers have gone away. If this group can do it, if this group can make it, then why can't this group? And so it's useful to have this idea that certain groups of people of color are pulling themselves up by the bootstraps, other groups are not. So this is a comment from a white Um, parent-teacher association leader. Okay. A common theme in interviews was that ethnicized minorities, particularly Asian students, had pro-school values. For example, a white parent-teacher association member at a multiracial school said that Korean parents, quote, push their kids very hard to achieve in school. She believed that, quote, all Americans all the immigrant groups have a strong commitment to education because they see that as a ticket for their children into American society. It's the old story. Importantly, she credited Koreans as being part of the old story, the one in which immigrants pull themselves up by their bootstraps. The low achievement of native-born minorities such as blacks undermined that American dream, but the success of immigrant minorities such as Koreans lent credence to it. So I want to switch to thinking about the the explicit comparisons teachers made between groups of minority students. And in this this part, I want to think about the kind of hierarchies that teachers are creating among um, students of color. So this is a black teacher at a multiracial school talking about her students. Um, And she says, I've seen a lot and you can mix cultures that are kind of on the same socioeconomic level and have, and have at least some similar values, but the problem with some of these really, really poor black kids is that they don't even share my values. Plus, they're not serviced at the rate they should be in. Okay, call me crazy, but when I can understand the Korean kid better than I can understand the black kid, don't you think you can give him some biling- bilingual education maybe? 
So she constructed Korean kids who she can understand, despite them being non-native English speakers, as being more deserving of aid than black students. She insinuated that black students, as, as native-born minorities, had no valid reason to have trouble speaking English, which ignores the structural barriers that these really, really poor black kids face. Moreover, she believed that black underachievement was caused by their values that were foreign to her. In this way, the teacher inverted the logic of the involuntary immigrant minority split, constructing blacks as the foreigners who spoke funny and Koreans as the familiar group. This is another example of teachers crediting students for their ethnicized difference and penalizing them for racialized difference. And so the point is that we shouldn't have categories of people who we think speak funny. That isn't the point. But the idea that um, this new times that we're in that combines colorblindness and multiculturalism allows us to invert those binaries and place, um, recreate African Americans as a stigmatized group. But in another chapter when I talk about how teachers think about African American schools, black schools, I say it actually concentrates the stigma about being a person of color to the category of being black because there's no redeeming feature about being black. If you speak funny, you have weird values, all this sort of stuff, so it actually might be a worse situation if you combine colorblindness and multiculturalism in these ways. Um, this next excerpt is from a white teacher at a multiracial school describing her school. And this is um, another example of the comparisons that rank immigrant minorities above native-born minorities, partially because of sort of um, imagining bad values um, between groups. So this is a white teacher at a multiracial school, and she said, and I also love the kids. They're so diverse, and some of them are so innocent because they've been in this little cultural bubble, and they haven't seen the evils of the world too much, and I love that. And even some of the eighth graders are still pretty innocent. However, she was not as inspired by black kids, saying, quote, some of the kids have unfortunately seen too much, but it's so different from my work at Grant Elementary, working with inner city kids who have unfortunately seen too much. Inner city is a racial code word for black, so the teacher was essentially comparing immigrant minorities to native-born minorities. She found the innocence of immigrant minorities refreshing exactly because she was disheartened by the hardness of black students she taught at Bowen and at her, at her previous school. And she, in short, she saw her school in terms of good and bad diversity, where some minorities were in, are inspiring while others are dispiriting. And so much of it has to do with the foreignness of the students. They are fresh and they're new and they haven't become hard and they haven't... Um, they sort of haven't become jaded about American society, and these other students um, are jaded, and that sort of thinking. This um, last comparison about, com um, last excerpt about comparisons takes two different schools, but the logic about how teachers are talking about Latino students versus how they're talking about black students um, is telling. And so one of the things that I do in this, the book is to compare teachers' construction of Latino students and African-American students because teachers saw blacks and Latinos as having some of the same barriers. So what if you don't um, think students are coming from uh, middle-class families because 
blacks and Latinos are seeing is coming from poor families. And also, um, you imagine that their parents aren't going to be involved. And if anybody's ever been in classrooms, the one thing that teachers complain about, about why schools are not doing so well, is that parents aren't involved. And so that's a really big thing to, to teachers. And they saw that as a common problem between, among blacks and Latinos. And so, um, but I noticed how they, teachers um, treated those same barriers differently. So an exchange with a Latina teacher at a Latino school um, illustrates this point. When the interviewer asked her, now what do you see as your students' strengths and weaknesses? She replied, well, because they're bilingual students, I think because they're learning the English language and I think they're doing it very well, I think that just shows me that they're going to do okay, that they're going to, do, they're going to be doing fine. Rather than using the language barrier to lower her expectations, this teacher views her students' ability to learn English as a sign that they will succeed in school. A teacher who is Latina at the other Latino school saw resilience in her students' ability to overcome their parents' lack of involvement. She noted that English was not the first language of most parents. Because of this, she said, quote, I know that the work that the kids produce is totally from what, from what they want to bring forth. I know that mom and dad are just going to say, honey, please be, please be good in school. She framed a deficit, lack of parental involvement, as causing a positive outcome, student self-sufficiency. Um, so you can imagine a circumstance where the teacher says that the parents aren't going to be involved and the student's not going to do well. But here this teacher is saying, well, there's a legitimate reason this parent is not involved. They can't speak the language. So that's part of it. There, there's legitimate reasons and illegitimate reasons for not being involved. And then also, this student is going to make it. They'll be able to cope with that lack of uninvolved, lack of uninvolved parent. So that's two teachers at a Latino school. And this is a teacher at a black school. These are teachers at black schools. Um, so when the interviewer asked how she dealt with the lack of parental involvement, this teacher said, the parents have to realize that her goal is not necessarily to get their children to be a critical thinker. She says, my goal is to get them to, they have so many social problems that lots of times I'm not going to teach them. Lots of times I'm not going to reach them. But if I teach him that there's, here's a young black woman who's intelligent, she's serious, she treats me nice, she's always here for me when I need her, sometimes I think that's more important than making sure that they're scoring about grade level on the standardized tests. Because plenty of times, lots of these children are coming from homes with rats and roaches on the inside. So, so they, don't, they don't care about the standardized test. They care about, at least I made it here today. So a lot's going on in this quote, but um, the upshot is that she's giving up responsibility for teaching the students. She's going to be nice to them, and that's what her benefit. That's what she's going to give the, the students um, because they just have too much to cope with. And you can imagine a teacher thinking that these students have so much to cope with, and for them to do anything is a sign of their being strong. They're resilient, but instead she says. There's not much we can do here, but I, you know, I care for them, and partly because I'm African-American too. Part, part of that is that I see the struggles they're in, and I feel responsibility for them, but I don't have expectations that they'll be able to learn. Um, 
The relatively new black principal at a black school advised her teachers to make the most of the time students spent in, the school, in school because they could not count on parental involvement at home. She said, and I explained to them that you've, you've been here much longer than I have and you know the situation. You know that there are five or six children. You know that there are only, there are only um, two or three bedrooms. There are plenty of people in and out of homes. You don't have that quiet time where you can sit at the kitchen table because there's no kitchen. There's a little cooking area, but no kitchen, where maybe we sat at the table and did our homework while Mama cooked dinner. That's not happening. So you don't have a traditional family who's supporting education the way that most of our parents did. Inadvertently, the principal revealed a double standard in how teachers treated racialized and ethnicized difference. If students needed a private space, such as a kitchen table, to do their work, then teachers should have had low expectations of immigrant families who also lived in poverty. Yet it was not the fact of poverty, but racialized poverty, that caused the principal to be pessimistic. She treated black poverty as a moral category by implying that the lack of traditional family interfered with the valuing of education. So that's the... That's the point, that it's not just being poor, but being black and poor, and what that means in American society. That's part of what goes into what teachers think and principals think about students. Um, and also this idea that African-American students don't come from traditional families, and that means that they can't, they can't cope, and then Latino students, Asian students, do come from traditional families. Okay. So... Given what I've talked about so far, it's, it seems that we're in this time period where teachers are being attracted to schools because they're diverse, um, that they're valuing particular types of minority status but not other types of minority status, and that there's some rewards for going to immigrant minorities. Um, but I want to talk in this last section about how teachers ultimately kept reproducing white normativity. So this is a, um, a white teacher at a Latino school. And she's asked this routine question that we asked at the end of the interviews. How do you identify racially and ethically? One of those boxes you check off, but we're doing it in an interview. Um, and after being asked this question, she launched into a meditation about identity. Interviewer, how would you characterize your race ethnicity? Teacher, my race? Teacher, Interviewer, uh-huh. Teacher, I guess I'm a European white person. Interviewer, okay. Teacher, but American, like I tell the kids. You know, they send us a racial ethnic survey, and I understand the reason for it. They want to make sure, and they really have to make sure, that funds are being distributed equitably. Interviewer, yeah. Teacher, and so I'm sitting here and I say, hey, I know you're all, we're all Americans, but, you know, which of you are Puerto Rican? A few things are interesting about this teacher's comments. First, she seemed uncomfortable with thinking in racial terms. Her hesitation before answering the question indicated by her asking the interviewer to repeat it suggested discomfort with the question, while her statement that she guessed that she was a European, European white American suggested embarrassment with applying racial label to herself. And research shows that whites don't typically think of themselves using a racial label, so what race are you, uh, huh? in a way that African-Americans probably won't do. Um, she continued to show discomfort with racial thinking in her ruminations about identity. 
She seemed to believe that racial labels were divisive and excluded groups from American identity. Thus, she followed her racial self-identification with but American as though they're in conflict. This suspicion of racial categories is common to colorblind and assimilationist thinking. Colorblindness reinforces racial hierarchies by erasing the continuing, continuing salience of race. Identifying racially does not have to contradict identifying as an American, but a statement treats them as contradictory identities. Thus, while she seemed to intend inclusion of racial ethnic minorities when she said, we're all Americans, she perpetuated the colorblind notion that to be truly American was to be racially unmarked. I also um, talk about how teachers think of immigrant minorities as having um, good values, but at, at the end of the day, they are not mainstream. So this white teacher is bothered by the perceived patriarchy, the perceived um, machismo of other cultures. And there are some good values that immigrant minorities bring, but in other ways they're, they're backwards. And that is part of what makes immigrant minorities um, good in certain ways, but not quite the norm. So this is a white teacher um, at a multiracial school. When asked to describe the parents at her school, she said, mostly wonderful. I go to these parents for parents' meetings, and I enjoy meeting people from different cultures. But usually, I hate to say it like this, it's just we have a couple of couple men, and they have such a hard time, especially if you're a woman, and you say, please. I've learned how to address them. She began within the ethnic credit frame, saying that she enjoyed meeting people from, other, from different cultures, but moved on to cultural differences that she found more troubling. Her comment that she hated to say it like this suggested that the teacher felt uncomfortable making generalizations about her students' culture, um, but she did limit the reach of her claim by saying it was only about a couple of men. But going on into um, next parts of her comments, moreover, she, while she had not initially associated sexist attitudes with a particular ethnic group, she associated them with Middle Eastern men in the remainder of her comments. She continued... But then I met a really wonderful woman from Pakistan. She flagged me down. You, stop, stop. And she said, oh, I just love that you're doing this and helping. And she, her idea, because she's lived in the Middle East, was that some people, to tell them what to do is, uh, takes away from their sense of personal freedom. So they'll fight you unless, you know, you're a policeman. So we're trying to, our new thing is to try to educate people that we're not out to get you. We're just trying to make the children... Make sure the children are safe. But I, think, but I think some of the cultures, the man is more dominant, so that sometimes is a problem. She rejected the Pakistanis' woman interpretation of why, of why military men did not listen to her. Instead, the teacher attributed their behavior to a patriarchal culture where the man is more, more dominant. So the Pakistani woman gave her something else to think about. Maybe they're just afraid of... Um, power dynamics generally, but she said it has to do with dominance that's typical of this kind of culture. Um, finally, teachers treated immigrant minority students as um, having some virtues, but still not being normative because they weren't middle class. So this is a white parent who's chair of the um, school council at a multiracial school. 
And he says, in fact, I mean the diversity of a lot of our ethnic groups don't talk to one another. They don't relate to this being the traditional way. I'm going to generalize here in the way your average middle class family does. That it's just natural that you be involved in the PTA or the school council type thing. That you volunteer. Um, so even though teachers think that um, immigrant minority parents have legitimate reasons for being uninvolved, they still don't quite make the norm of being middle class. They still um, don't have that instinct to volunteer that a middle class person does. And people who study talk about middle classness have, have noticed that middle classness often contains this idea of whiteness inside of it. So to be middle class is to, is to be white, not just middle class, but white and middle class. So confident in the fact that, white, that the white middle class was still normative, teachers were free to appreciate the enriching differences that Latino and Asian students brought. They can engage in this sort of diversity um, that was instrumental without fearing that the dominant culture will lose its status. Moreover, the differences that they valued in ethnicized minorities, such as their, their traditional morality, also put the dominant culture in a good light. Teachers believe that immigrant minorities had values that were similar to their own. They were hardworking, clean, and honest. While assimilating diversity seemed like a big, a big break from America's racist past, it actually gave teachers a way to reconcile white privilege with recognizing difference. So what do we do? What do we do in this circumstance where um, even talking about diversity still can help reproduce inequality between racial groups? Well, I don't spend a lot of the book talking about that. Most of the book is laying out the problem. But I do have a couple of ideas about how this can be different. Now, um, one thought is that teachers' instinct to recognize strengths within um, different groups of students is good. So to see the ability to cope with obstacles as a resilience is a good thing. And my argument would to extend the idea that groups are resilient to include all races. That's not a sort of a negative thing, but they just sh stop short of including African Americans in the people they think of being resilient. So that's one thought, is that um, extend what resilience um, covers. But I think the central argument of the book is that diversity just won't cut it when we're trying to think about dealing with inequality. Diversity is not the same as thinking about um, differences between groups in power. And um, a white principal, the white principal at a Latino school sort of gets that. And she says, in many cases, minority children, ours are predominantly Hispanic, but I think also African Americans and other minority groups, they're put in a box, they're labeled with a lot of negative things. People don't think they can be successful because of the color of their skin or the fact that their first language is not English or whatever it is. I think our society has not put high expectations on minority children, so I really want our children to have the option to, to do whatever they want. And she puts um, her money where their mouth is. In this one school, um, the principal insists that all the students do a lot of writing in elementary school. And the reason that she has the students do a lot of writing is because she knows that being fluent, um, being able to write, um, fluently is one of the measures of being seen as intelligent. And she understands the sort of, not just the practical aspect of that, but the symbolic aspect of that for Latino students. 
And she's talking directly about racial categories and power and inequality. The white principal at Stanley clearly recognized that race and ethnicities were structures of power. She was able to see strengths in Latino students, but she was also attuned to the racialized obstacles they faced. Her positive view of Latinos was especially noteworthy because it was not grounded in shared racial heritage, as were the positive perceptions of black teachers at black schools. While she was just one example, she shows that white faculty could adopt an anti-racist perspective. Anti-racist teaching practices are not new, but this book shows that multiculturalism and anti-racism are not interchangeable. It suggests that teachers should not substitute multiculturalism for anti-racism or any other ideology that does not have social justice as its core. Um, so, it's open for questions. We'll have some Q&A, and after that, um, we have books in the back for sale, and Dr. Randolph will be signing books at the front table. So, who would like question number one? Please speak into the mic. Thank you very much. Very good presentation. Um, in your studies, did you look at the role of extracurricular activities, art, music, hmm. sports, uh, chess club, for example, uh, as a way of bolstering the student's confidence and, you know, not only reaching out socially but doing uh, well academically because it's been proven that music, for example, has a direct role in helping them to attune their brain quicker to get quicker facts. Have you been able to come across that information? Thank you. We studied, we primarily focused on teachers um, practicing in, in classrooms, so we didn't pay a lot of attention to what extracurricular activities were students were involved in. So that actually isn't something that I know much about, about how that would affect teachers' views of students if some students were very active in some club and some students weren't. That's a good question. I haven't thought about that, and I also don't have the information that would enable me to talk so much about it. Okay. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Uh, I love the study and I love your book. And I'm wondering if you can lay out um, sort of the historical foundations of this colorblindness. Hmm. Um, and I'm sure you do that in your book, which I will read. <laughs> I have it. Um, and whether I'm curious about the 80s and the attack on affirmative action that continues and sure. Reagan um, uh, and how that plays into this new multiculturalism. Yeah. That's a good question. So the origins of colorblindness, well, it does have its history in the 80s. Um, you know, the United States was faced with this problem. Um, racism, overt racism, racism has fallen out of favor. To be racist, to be explicitly, this group of people is inferior is to be a member of the Ku Klux Klan in the way that it wasn't in the past. It could be, have some mainstream traction to say those kinds of distinctions in a way that it isn't today. Um, and so I think we've moved to thinking about, well, um, even noticing racial differences is to be racist because we're just all people. And you can see the appeal of that kind of argument. And in fact, people ground, ground that kind of argument in Martin Luther King's words about the color of, the content of our character versus the, the color of our skin. Um, and using that sort of thinking that even to notice race is to be racist. Um, because we're so against racism, because that's the main, that's the sort of dominant position to take, um, has these sort of screwy effects. It's actually a way um, people who study this say that colorblindness winds up being a form of racism, 
because you can't declare racism dead and start turn a new page. You have to deal with the ongoing institutional effects of racism that continues to exist. So merely saying that I don't notice race doesn't take away the structural inequalities of race. Um, but in, I think American cultures were put on the spot after the civil rights movement, you know, um, had won some advances and legal obstacles towards integration have been removed and this sort of thing. Where do we stand on race now? Well, it seems more progressive to say, I don't even notice race. I don't notice race. And because I don't notice race, we don't need affirmative action. All the battles have been won. You can get into the whatever school you want to be in because there's no law preventing you to. And so colorblindness ignores um, the historic and these current structural problems of race by declaring race is now gone and thinking about that as being a progressive stance to take. It's anti-racist to say that. Hi, good evening. Um, I was wondering if you could speak about uh, TFA and how that's a predominantly, um, there's, the program's made up of predominantly white, even upper class individuals. Sure. Going into predominantly um, uh, communities of color and mm -hmm. teaching there. I was wondering if you could speak on that. Tell us what TFA is. Uh, Teach for America. Teach for America, yeah. So Teach for America, um, it was from the 90s it came on, you know, yeah. Teach for America was imagined as sort of a comparable thing as Peace Corps kind of work. You're going to go give back to communities. You go to college, and you're not trained as a teacher, but you do some, do some time. That's kind of, I don't want to use that phrase. Maybe I do. Um, <laughs> Teach in schools that are needy. Teach at, at schools that were especially need folks um, to help there. Um, and as the, as the person in the audience suggested, it's predominantly white, middle class, upper middle class teachers going to predominantly schools of color. So this very racial mismatch that I'm talking about. Um, and people who have studied Teach for America, um, well, the other research about Teach for America that I've heard about is concerned about how unprepared these teachers are for these classrooms. And so it's sort of designed for failure, not because, um, not coming up with conspiracy, fit, conspiracy theories, but one problem that students of color face is being in schools with the least prepared teachers. And Teach for America just replicates that problem of the least prepared teachers, as well as intentions that they might be, are teaching in these schools. Um, and then they have a bad experience there because it's very hard to teach because they don't have the school, the skills to teach there, and then they leave. And so the idea is to make teachers, expose teachers to these settings, and then they'll get hooked on teaching, and then they'll stay. But it's having this opposite effect. They're, they're leaving. They don't stay in the schools. And the students on the end of the um, equation for the students, they're getting these teachers who are well-meaning but not having the, the pre preparation to teach them well. And so my book is adding this other layer about teachers seeing um, maybe the diversity of their schools as a good thing, but what sort of, what do they mean by good diversity in that instance? So that's the other layer that the book is trying to add to that Teach for America equation. Thanks, Antonio. This is a terrific formulation on teachers. And then I'm like really curious about what the students are doing. Mm. Um, are they manipulating this phenomenon? Mm -hmm. Are they like getting damaged by it? Sure. Excellent question. One that I did not study, unfortunately. <laughs> so the book is based on interviews with teachers, and that's what I analyze. But um, the, the research on which this is based does have 
teachers practice in classrooms, we have observation data. So my next project is to look at um, what do teachers, do their actions match up what they say in these interviews? So is there actual um, different sort of teaching happening based on who says that I um, admire Hispanic people because X, Y, and Z, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so that's stuff, research I hope to do. But it's also true that other people have studied um, other people have studied the way immigrant minorities can can use symbolizing manifesting their immigrant minority status in hopes of getting different treatment than native-born minorities. So Mary Waters is um, a sociologist who's known for this, doing um, work in in the work setting, in employment settings where, um, like, if I had a little Costa Rican flag up here, I would symbolize to you, I'm not just black, I'm Costa Rican, and then. In fact, people treat you differently because you're not just black, you're Costa Rican. And so I don't know if, te- if students do this, but it's been found in work settings that people try to symbol, you know, uh, manifest their difference because otherwise you're just a racially marked person trying to symbolize their ethnic difference um, and then people actually treat them different, differently in these institutions. Hi, I'm not a teacher, but you know your conclusions and your findings that blacks multiculturalism does not benefit black americans mm. it just sort of i think most black americans native born americans we've known this historically there's even like a little quip if you're brown stick around if you're yellow you okay you're you yeah. know if you're white you're on track I, I i just mangled that but you know what i'm talking about yes <laughs> you know yes we, so we've known this historically we've seen this with other uh, i had an italian american boss and you know i guess you know his people were ellis island people and and i had a discussion with him about i said coming to america made you white you know, and I said, if not, sure. if you would have immigrated to another European um, country, you just would have been a poor European. Mm. We gave you, Mayor, when you immigrate here, you get the benefit of whiteness, and you can only have that if we're at the bottom. Sure. No, I mean, there's definitely, um, I mean, one of the things this book draws out is the exceptionalism of African Americanness. And so I think, I want to keep that complexity, though, that African Americans are continually recreated as the bottom of the hierarchy in a certain way. But, um, other people who think about this talk about there's another pole between inferior and superior. So African Americans are continually being recreated as inferior of all the racial groups. But there's also this foreign and um, foreign native split that Asians and Latinos are often marked as perpetually foreign. And that's another kind of hierarchy that we don't often talk about that has more to do with having an immigrant status. And it comes out in the book in a funny kind of way, but just to maintain this complexity that there, I do want to say that there's this complex, this, this exceptionalism of how African-Americanness has understand the United States, but also immigrant status has this perpetually foreign thing that we don't talk about enough. Did you have any examples of um, African-American teachers or administrators looking at uh, resiliency or other assets of African-American students? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, in the chapter that's about black, teach, black schools, there are, if anybody's going to have positive perceptions of black students, it's going to be African-American teachers is what I found. So predominantly, um, teachers had the most negative perceptions of African-American students across races of teachers, but if anybody had positive perceptions of African-American students, they were African-American teachers, and they were able to identify 
resiliencies among black students. But the caveat there is that um, um, black poverty. So the teachers were middle class, black middle class. And there is in the country the way that being black and poor is constructed is such a um, abject category that even black teachers um, were constructing black students as being immoral and having bad families and all this sort of thing. So the combination of race and class gets to be important. But to answer your question, yes, black teachers were able to identify strength among black students, and they were the only ones pretty much who did. Thank you, Antonia Randolph, for this very inspiring and um, important work. <laughs>